and welcome to Kiwi Rider Podcast. My name is Ray Heron. Great to have you along. If this is the first podcast you've joined us on, then please do hit that like button and uh, share it with a riding buddy of yours. Usually uh, it's me or me and Matt. This time though, Matt's not with us and we've got someone else who you may have heard on the podcast a few times over the last few months. It's Todd Heslin. G'day Todd, how you doing? I am doing good, Ray. Thanks for having me back on the podcast. Well, we've been through a lot. Well, no, that's a lie. You've been through a lot in the last <laughs> few months. Um, we've followed your journey with uh, California Superbike School. Uh, you've done a few stints with them. You've been on track around Manfield as well as uh, Pukekohe. And now you've done a bit of bucket action. Bucket racing in Kaitoki. It was uh, my first, no, sorry, my second time doing bucket racing. I'm not sure. I think we, we've had a podcast episode with me talking about potentially doing bucket racing, I think. Mm. I think that we the last time we recorded, we talked about Superbike School and I mentioned that I was supposed to do bucket racing that weekend when we came back and that's when we had the cyclone in New Zealand. So that didn't happen. But um, I managed to get my first race out of the way and then you come and join me for my second race, didn't you? I sure did, and it was very eventful. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about it uh, in depth this episode. Okay. But what I'm, right, what I'm doing right now, uh, live on camera, we don't actually do these live uh, to YouTube episodes very often, but we've got some footage to show you as well. So if you're listening on the uh, the audio feed on the podcast, uh, make sure you search out T7 Adventures on YouTube and check out the video version of this podcast because, as I said, we've got some audio, uh, some video to show you. What I'm doing right now, though, is, um, and you might already have it in your brain, Todd, the definition of bucket racing. Right. The, I don't really, okay, so I know the rules around it. I don't, I don't know if I could describe it very well. Um, I had a funny incident when I was buying my helmet in Sydney about three weeks ago where I kept saying, yeah, I'm just using this for bucket racing. And the, the lady selling me the helmet was very, very confused. She's like, Tell, I don't understand like what this is about. And I was saying, you know, they're small bikes that are 150 cc's and you go around a go-kart track. And she's like, yeah, but where are the buckets? I just don't understand the bucket part. <laughs> and then I had to explain, well, I believe the origin comes from uh, the bikes were built with a, a bucket of bolts and bucket of parts. You put it all together and you go around a go-kart track. But she was so perplexed with this idea that I kept using the word bucket, but I didn't actually explain at all what a bucket actually related to the racing. So, yes, we've got 150 cc's uh, around a go-kart track. Uh, the only regulation is that the engine has to be non-competition so it's got to be like a, a an x road bike um or a current road bike but uh you can't use like a dirt bike engine or anything like that uh but yeah chassis is up for grabs wheels are up for grabs brakes suspension do whatever you want but 150 cc's is your max you can use i actually think it's 155 or six or something but yeah it's small uh looking on um wikipedia right now because we all know wikipedia is the um the the uh, antithesis the point of uh of accuracy um the term bucket racing comes from the slang phrase a bucket of shit <laughs> all right uh, rather than use it using finely tuned racing machines for usual racing circuits the bikes were often recycled x road machines that had crashed or fallen into disrepair uh, became popular, spread out of Australia in around 1988, um, and hit its height in the mid-90s. 
with uh, up to 60 competitors at one race meeting. So um, we hit some bucket racing, well, you did, and I came along to film it uh, last weekend. Um, it was a yep. re reasonably early start, 8.30, 9 o'clock, up to Kaitoki at the foot of Tucker Hill. Um, and I've never, I've been out to the, uh, the go-kart track out there once, but that was for a 7K run, so it was a bit different um, going out there and actually going around the track. Uh, first thing we did, you uh, took your license in and you signed in. I did. had to give him my helmet to make sure my helmet was um, legal to use for racing. Uh, give them the license and then they hold on to that license so that if I did something very bad or if I crashed or if I did anything that uh, they would need to hold my license until I fixed that problem, um, that they would uh, make sure they wouldn't only give it back on me acting very well in good behavior. Um, so the, the idea is that obviously if you misbehave, then um, you can't come back to another race meeting. So gave them my license. I showed them the helmet. They said it was all good. And then you and I went for a track walk, didn't we? Yeah, we went for a wander around the track, which is the first time I've set foot on that track. And they, um, if you've been to the Kaitoki um, kart track, it's, uh, it's, it's got quite a bit of elevation change, actually. A lot more than you expect, right? It's only when you're walking around and you get a bit puffed walking up that hill where you realize how steep it is. Mm. And then periodically as you uh, called upon to be a flag marshal at uh, five or six, uh, and then they just happen to be the furthest away points, which are right at the very top of the hill. And they go, come on, we're racing yeah. in three minutes. Come on, you got to run up there. <laughs> you and I did a fair bit of flag marshalling, didn't we? Um, which uh, was your first time waving flags, wasn't it? Well, it was my first time waving flags in that environment. I've done a little bit of stuff, you know, around um, Topol Motorsport Park and stuff like that, but very different. Um, so we we, were, we had a, a races briefing, a driver's riders briefing. Uh, we had two flags on the day. We had a yellow and a blue. Blue was yep. um, you're about to be lapped, so take it easy and move over. And yellow was, uh, there's an issue on the track. Yes. Although I would say with the blue, if you get waved a blue, you shouldn't move over. You should keep your line. Because if someone's going to overtake you, they know what they're doing because they're overtaking you or they're lapping you. Um, just do what you're supposed to do and they'll figure out how to get around. Um, point. Just to correct you there, because uh, that's that's one of the points they really try and, and, and drive home because a lot of um, newbies get the blue flag and then they just go absolutely everywhere and just cause chaos. So they just say, just follow, do your normal race and whoever's behind you, they'll figure out how to get by. So once we had our, um, our, our riders briefing and, and kind of uh, worked out what was going on and had our walk around the track, um, we had a bit of time to catch up with the local bucket races. Uh, you know them um, a bit more than I do, but... Um, bunch of decent dudes right yeah really nice guys um everyone's very friendly and very welcoming they love to see new faces doing uh doing the bucket racing which is which is good um i guess the uh the point here is that when i turned up i didn't know what bike i was riding because <laughs> uh one of the guys dane said um hey just turn up i rode his bike the first first time i did a race uh, a month ago and um, for this one, he's like, yeah, just turn up. We'll have a bike. Don't know whose it is, but someone will lend you a bike. So, um, yeah, we turned up and I thought I was going to be riding um, a bike that is by the president of the club um, who wasn't able to make it for the day. And his bike was there. And another fellow was riding it in B grade. I was going to ride it in A. 
But then we found another gentleman who had two bikes and um, he said, I was more than happy to, he was more than happy to let me ride his second bike. Um, so that was sort of last minute, but yeah, everyone that was really friendly and really happy to share all sorts of details about what they've done to their bike. And I think it's a bit of pride in um, how you've turned this kind of salvage piece of uh, engine and chassis or into something that you can actually push around a track. Absolutely. Um, so first up was a, I think it was an 11 lap warm up, kind of get out on the track, see what the track's doing, uh, warm up the tires, get the bike running, you know, quick shake down on the bike and that sort of thing. You jumped on this um, bucket of bolts, shall we say, and mm -hmm. uh, shot off for a few laps. So it was supposed to be 11. I didn't do 11, did I? <laughs> I think you got about six. <laughs> yeah. So this is a, a, a bike from someone else, not my own bike. Um, I guess people are going to have a guess where this episode is going to go. <laughs> um, I'll give some context. So the bike is an FXR150, which is a, a Suzuki. Uh, the previous bike I rode, which was Dane's bike, was a CBR150. I liked the FXR chassis. Um, it was slightly bigger. Um, I felt I had more, slightly longer reach to my arms and I could kind of get into a better tuck. Um, the brakes were not so good. <laughs> um, the grip was not quite as good as the CPR. Um, and the engine was good down low, but not so good up high. Um, but it was a really fine bike to ride. I think like once I got on and felt the chassis, I was like, yeah, this is definitely better than the CBR. So I, I would give up a lot of the braking and power and everything else just to feel really comfortable on the bike. So I managed to get out, do a few laps. I thought I had enough heat in the tires, probably didn't. And I think you're right. I think it might've been about lap six where um, going along the back straight, I, we came into a um, hairpin and uh, yeah, just lost the front. We got some video footage. And yeah, just came in. And I, I think honestly, it was just too much lean angle. I wasn't hanging off the bike because I wasn't, I felt comfortable enough to go fast, but not comfortable enough to kind of hang off and get a, a decent uh, body position. So yeah, asking too much lean angle, the front tire said, nope, I'm done. And slidey, slidey, slide off to the side of the track. And I had to wait. Yeah. So you went into a right hander and the what the front just washed out on you. The bike spun yeah. away, ended up on the grass and you actually, looking at that footage, uh, looked like you came in there quite uh, abruptly landing on the front wheel of the bike. I, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I saw that video, footage a few times. I actually hit the bike myself. I'm sliding behind it, then doink, straight into it. So <laughs> kind of funny. Luckily, though, you're wearing all the um, leather pr protective gear and, you know, full helmet and gloves and all that sort of jazz, and you came away pretty unscathed. Yeah, absolutely. That was, um, I felt fine after it. Um, really no damage to me at all. A um, few scuff marks on the leathers, but that's okay. I, I bought them secondhand. Um, and you and I had to fix the lever up, didn't we? Because we lost a little ball off the end of the, what was it? The brake? Right. It was a brake lever. Um, so we had to, what did we put on the end? It was duct tape, wasn't it? Yeah, they said ball up a bit of duct tape and then just strap that to the end of the lever so you haven't got any sharp bits poking out. It's actually something else we should point out as well that uh, you were saying the, the any sharp bits on the bikes have to be kind of covered by whether it be tape or nylon or something. Yeah, gen generally anything that could touch the track has to be nyloned. So the, the levers don't because the levers are sit inside the um, end of the clip-ons on the handlebars. So there's nylon on the end of those and they would be hitting the track first. But uh, your front axle, rear axle, sometimes you have um, uh, like crash bits on the side of where the engine is if it sticks out. 
Um, anywhere that could be scraping on the track has to be nylon. And I believe that's because the surface for a go-kart track is actually slightly different mix than like a racetrack. Um, it's a lot more delicate and will chip much easier. Um, I believe that's true. I, someone might be able to correct me there, but because um, it's very expensive to replace a go-kart track and we don't want to mess it up too much. They uh, really enforce that we add the, all the nylon to the bike. So um, if it was something else, like if we ripped off one of the um, the axle sliders, I think we would not be able to get back on unless anyone had a spare one that was proper nylon. Mm. So sheepishly, you, um, you, you, you walked the bike off the track um, <laughs> and, and we fixed it up and it was all good. We got the green light to get, for you to get back on the track, which is uh, brilliant. Uh, race one. Now you were racing in A, two categories, right? A and B. B was the the newer and the slower guys, and A was the the hard outs. Uh, yeah, that's right. So when I my first race I did um, a month ago, I started in B, and uh, I think first first race I came second, and then I just came first every time after that and then started lapping people. I, I realized like I needed to be in A group because it just I was quick enough to be in A. Um, and at that point on the first race, I just couldn't, um, because I was sharing a bike with another guy in the A grade, then he kind of had that, um, this time I wanted to go in A grade and, um, feel what it was like to be with people who are about the same speed. And it's definitely actually, I, I lied. I did have one race in A grade on the first time I raced a month ago. And that was, uh, really good, but realize how hard it is because when you're around people that all do the same speed and they break at the same point and they're like, some guys are much faster. It's really, really hard to overtake people on the track. It's really hard because it's so small. So my goal coming into this race was, or these set of races, um, was to get really good or to get more experience in overtaking because you have to be really aggressive and you have to really be confident in making those moves. So that was kind of what I wanted to get out of this whole race weekend. Um, but yeah, a grade, I was mid pack towards the end. Like the other guys at the front, like you saw them, right. They were, they were so quick. I think my, my lap times are about 45 seconds around the track and they were like 40, 41, 42 seconds. Like they were really quick. Yeah. Yeah. It was quite impressive to see you catching a few of those guys, um, and, and passing, uh, a couple of, uh, on a couple of occasions, but there were some people that were were lapping everyone else that just had you know <laughs> you, nobody had any chance of keeping up. Yeah. Um, so you we at the start of the day we were told maybe five, potentially six races in the day. Man, you get a yep. lot of track time. Um, I think it was yeah. ten laps a race thereabouts. Ten laps. Yep. Ten. Um, so you're on track for a little under, well, probably about 10 minutes when you add your two warm-up laps at the start and everything, and then you're off. And as soon as you're off, the other class goes on, um, and, and you're called on to, to be a flag marshal. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So this is actually normally, um, in, in back in sort of pre COVID times, they used to run a go-karts day and a and bike, sorry, go-karts and bikes on the same day. So you'd have like a, a few classes of go-karts and then you'd bring on the bucket bikes and then you have a few more go-karts and then you have bucket bikes. I think with some of the COVID restrictions, they actually split that apart to try and um, make, limit the number of people in the club and therefore they could get more people to the event in total. Um, I, th I believe someone did mention this might be the last time they've done just a full buckets. Uh, I think they've done this about three or four times where it's just been the buckets 
only on track. And there's a lot of track time because you're constantly going back and forth, as you said. Um, but I think when we go back to when the carts will be there, then there's bigger gaps between because it could be 30, 40 minutes. Or if you're going between classes, it could be maybe an hour before, like in between races. Um, so yeah, it's, you get more time to recover, right? Because it's it's quite tiring uh, going around and then sort of having a little break and going back on again. Is it? Oh, I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, you got races one to four out before lunch and yep. um, you did pretty well. Uh, I, I, I saw you overtake at least two people per race. You were finishing mid-pack. Um, yeah. How did you feel you, you were going? I, I definitely... I felt like I was getting what I wanted to out of the day. Um, it definitely was more challenging. Um, I met a fella, um, James, who was riding a KTM Duke uh, 200, um, which I believe isn't 200 CCs, but they call it a 200. Um, I believe it's 150. Um, and that was actually quite good because we were, we were a similar pace. So I think the first few races, he, uh, I held him off. Um, and he was, uh, I think I, I had a, a good overtake or a pretty aggressive overtake to, to take him, I think maybe in race two. And then, um, I held him up for those two races. And then the following two after that, um, he took me and I couldn't get around him. So we, that, he was quite a good person to, to battle with because both of us had to work really hard to get in front of the other and hold them off. Um, and I really enjoyed sort of having someone else who was about the same pace. Um, so I felt like I got out of what I needed to for the um, first few races. Definitely felt I was starting to get a bit tired towards the end. Um, and where I kind of noticed it the most was this uh, bike I was riding was set up in GP shift. So for, for those who don't know, that's you have your normal motorcycle shift where it's what go down the first and then up, 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 up. And that's how you go up your gears. GP shift is the opposite. So you ha you're in neutral, then you go up to go to first and then you go down, 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 down with your, with your foot, with your boot. And that's going up the gears. Um, and I actually adapted to that really quickly, except when I was getting tired and I was coming into like a corner where I was really concentrating. And of course, like you just got to go down a gear and you go up a gear and then you try and change two gears mid corner and the bike's moving around and you lose so much speed. But like, I definitely felt as we approached lunch, I was starting to get to that point of tiredness um, from, from racing, I think four or five races at that point. Mm, absolutely. Um, so we had, uh, we had some lunch. Um, oh, I rode the R15 at lunch, didn't I? You did. You got to ride the R15, which was set up by uh, some guy, Fish. Fish, yeah. Fish set that up. That was his, I think it's, uh, was it might have been his son. I'm not sure. Um, he had a few, they had a few R15s there. Um, and I took the one that had the GP shift because that's what I've been riding. So it would make more sense to, to do that. But yeah, Dane and I just walked around and Dane said, hey, Todd's thinking of getting an R15. Can he try yours? And he's like, yeah, go take this at lunch. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I got five laps in at lunch of um, the Yamaha R15. And how'd that feel? So where I said the FXR was better than the CBR in terms of um, chassis, I think the R15 was a little bit better again, just for like my size and sort of proportions where I felt really comfortable. Um, the R15, I feel, was just a lot more comfortable. Um, engine was good too, but I wasn't really, it's, it's hard to kind of compare the engines. I find, um, you can kind of tell over several laps and looking at lap times and just kind of how it feels 
in and out of corners in different situations to get a good sense of if an engine is slightly better than another. But in terms of just feeling comfortable, yeah, the R15 was incredible. So I wasn't really, obviously it's a, a new bike just using five laps over lunch. I didn't really want to push too hard. Um, already had one crash in the day. I didn't want to crash someone else's bike. Um, but I found even without pushing too hard, the bike let me go really fast. Um, I could just turn to the corners and it would just stick and it was just really, really nice. So obviously this bike was well set up because Fish knows what's he, what, what he's doing, but I definitely have my eyes on my next bike will be the R15 for sure. Yeah, Fish guy, he was, um, he was definitely, he was an A grade against you, but he was right in the front lapping everyone. <laughs> yeah. He was, he was one of the, you know, hitting 40, 41 seconds a lap and just yeah. ridiculously quick. Yeah, I think over a whole lay, over a whole race, if he's like what five seconds ahead of me, he wouldn't be off what it would take seven laps for him to be able to um, lap me. Um, so I think he would have lapped me in one of one or two of the races for sure. Um, obviously, that was his best lap, but I think he's pretty consistent at the low forties. Um, so yeah, he's quick. He's very quick, and he knows how to set up a bike. So yeah, R fifteen, yeah. get him on your team to to, to set it up, and you'll be away yeah. lapping, I reckon. Um, so first race back after lunch, we had two more races to go, uh, race five, race six, race five was an interesting one. Now, before we talk about race five, let's talk about the track. So from start finish, okay. you've got a big, long straight up the hill. You've got a kink, right, uh, about a right angle left, uh, hairpin, yep. right. Then you've got the back straight, and this is where you start going down the hill. Talk us through the, the downhill section, because I know it wasn't your favorite. Yeah, that's right. Um, for the video, you can probably put a map up on the screen to make it easier for people to follow um, for those watching on YouTube. So the back going down the hill, um, I was good all the way up that section that you described there, all the way good. I'd kind of call that sector one and two. Coming down, I really struggled um particularly not after the the back straight hairpin or the kind of sweeper after at the end of the back straight um the the, the left and then left after that was also okay but there's kind of this like right then left then you go down to the bottom of the track and then you kink back around and i just could never quite get the gearing right and the speed right and the breaking point right it just it never felt comfortable the That's only thing that time right yeah, definitely. So I, th I think you, you said you were watching when um, James was behind me, um, the guy I was talking about before and through the, like from the coming onto the start finish straight all the way through to basically the top of the, the hill or the top of the track, I was kind of pulling away from him and then all the way coming back down to the bottom of the track, he was catching me. Um, and I definitely knew that was my weakest point. I just never really felt great there. Um, I think the thing that did help in that section was um, the guy whose bike I was um, uh, borrowing, uh, Malcolm, he said, uh, when you're in that section, just leave it in third. Don't bother going between second and third. Third kind of feels like it's a bit too high of a gear and you want to be down in second, but changing 
during that section is really, really hard because you're kind of always changing just as you're about to break and flick it in. And it's, if you don't get the timing right, you basically bomb the corner and you just lose all your time. So he said, just leave it in third and um, just ride down the hill. Cause you got, obviously you're going downhill as well. So it's not like you're gonna lose too much speed. And after I made that change, um, he was spot on. Like I could go faster in that section. And I did feel all I had to do was focus on steering and um, braking and acceleration. I didn't have to worry so much about changing gears in the quick change of direction. So that helped, but I still didn't feel fantastic going down. So once you get through all the switchbacks and the, and the twisty downhill section, you've got, you're onto the last corner, which is a, a sweeping right-hander onto the flat. You've got a little straight, a kink right, and then you back up the hill and over the start finish line. So from that last corner, you're hoping to get your speed and your, you know, your mix of all the factors right. So you can carry your speed around there and then just pin it all the way down around over the start finish line and back up to the top corner. Yeah. Yep. That's right. So if we, if, if, if anyone can see the map there, um, when the, you have the final, we have the second last corner, which is right at the bottom of the hill on the, under the bottom right-hand side of the circuit. Um, then basically from there, you are absolutely flat out all the way up until the first left. So you've got one more, you've got the right at the bottom to go on the start finish straight. You've got another right kink and then you go left. And uh, you're going from, I'm going to say from third to fourth to fifth. And then I think you may even get to six at that point before you turn left. Um, but yeah, that is absolutely flat out. It's basically the fastest part of the circuit, I believe. I think it's faster than the start finish straight. Uh, sorry, the, the back straight. Um, but I haven't actually checked the, the camera footage, well, but I'm pretty sure that's basically You're holding the it part. way open. You're holding yeah. it open for a lot longer to that point. So from that last corner, around the right-hand kink, over the start-finish line, up the hill, into the right-hander, and this in race five, probably about lap four, with, <laughs> you were fighting for, for a position, weren't you? I, I was. So once again, I was, I was behind James here, and I... I was quicker than him on certain parts of the circuit. I really was anxious to overtake him. Funnily enough, I found out later the guy whose R15 I borrowed at lunchtime, he was behind me at this. So he, he got to watch everything that was about to unfold. Um, so we went over the start, finish straight. I had really good drive. I felt coming out of the second final corner. So I was catching right up to James ahead of me. Um, a, a common overtaking move is to um hang on the left hand on the outside of the first right hand corner because when it goes left you can basically block past someone on that left hand um, left hand corner and i've i've always since i started racing at this track i've always every single race felt really confident on that corner as in i'm i think i'm fifth gear flat out and then it's basically down two gears and just heavy on the brakes before you just throw it left and the bike feels really stable it didn't quite happen that way <laughs> this lap. So going past the start finish straight, I hung around to the outside, going around the outside, not quite overtaking, but right on the outside of James in front of me on the right hander. And I ran off the track. Now I didn't really know what happened entirely until I saw the video footage of the, um, the cameras that you put on the bike, um, the cameras of which one of I destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> um, it turns out that what happened was I, I did run off the track. I, I basically went to cut that left-hand corner. I just, I, I went a little bit too wide. 
I thought I held the brakes on when I was breaking, obviously breaking on the tarmac. And then I went off and then I, I thought I was still breaking on the, on the grass. I wasn't, I actually took my hand off the brake. Cause you can see I'm sort of rolling on the grass, but because I was so close to James in front of me, the next thing that was going to happen was he had to turn left and he had no idea that I was about to cut that corner and basically T-bone him. So I did have this moment. I do remember in my head where it's like, Oh no, I'm going to T-bone him. And I think that's probably where I just grabbed the front brake on the grass with a slick tire. That's not going to work. And the whole bike just washed out on the inside of the track. I was only probably what 30, 40 centimeters off the track, but you know, grass and uh, a front brake, they just don't mix. And you did a good job. You washed out, you bought, you went down on the left-hand side, the bike kind of um, spiraled across the track, and I, I wasn't even watching. I, I looked up to see you <laughs> on the right-hand side of the left-hand corner uh, yes. and, and standing up and kind of you were kind of going, okay, shit, what do I do now? There's dudes all over the track picking up cameras and bits of dirt <laughs> and grass and stuff. Um, and yeah, the camera that you mentioned that, uh, got uh, destroyed, unfortunately was the, uh, the 360 camera that you've probably seen footage of in a few different, um, videos, but, um, geez, you're a nice bloody guy, aren't you? You bought us a brand new one. You well, that's what you got to do, right? <laughs> didn't have to do that. I was going to claim insurance, but, um, thanks very much for that. Uh, so what did we learn from the experience? What did we learn? Well, uh, I, Okay. So the first thing is I really need, <laughs> I didn't really need my own bike to start with. <laughs> I shouldn't be trashing other people's bikes. That's not cool. Um, Malcolm was really cool about it. Um, okay. Let's talk the damage first. So um, I bent uh, one of the clip-ons. Um, the gear lever was completely just ruined and bent. And I think there was a bit of sheet metal that was holding up the front fender that kind of popped off I just a bit of, yeah, it was a bit of custom sheet metal. So it really wasn't a lot of damage, but it always doesn't feel great when it's not your bike. <clears throat> so number one is I'm going to need to get my own bike so I can trash my own bike. I think that makes more sense. Um, number two is on, uh, with bucket racing. What? Yeah. So with bucket racing, you don't get any real time to practice and learn the track. You kind of have that 10 minute qualifying at the beginning, but that's just not enough time to really figure out like where all your brake markers are. It's at the very beginning of the day. So you don't, you're not even getting comfortable. You're sort of just getting warmed up for the day. Um, I'm sure the guys that have been to the track many, many, many times would find that warm up to be perfectly enough. But for me, who's sort of just learning the track and also learning a new bike at the same time, I really didn't have enough confidence on exactly where my brake markers were, where the bike was strong, where it was weak, where I could be flat out, where I really had to be more sensitive. And because of that, you get into a race scenario and no matter what your intentions are, like you, the blood just comes to your head and you're just in like angry race mode. And that's not a really good idea when like you're still borrowing someone's bike on a new track that you need to spend more time on. So I really need to spend more time and get used to the bike and the track. And that probably would have prevented this. I think ultimately the way I, I see the crash in the video footage though, I don't know if I really, once I made the mistake, I don't know if I could have gone on straight. I think I probably would have hit him. So I think that if he wasn't in front of me, there's probably a good chance that it wouldn't have made a crash. It would have just been a mistake, but I don't think I probably would have changed anything different in the moment. I also would not 
not do that overtake again because I really like that overtake and I really think it works. I just probably never assumed that I would probably go wide enough to hang off the track, um, like to actually hit the grass. So I would be more aware of that next time, but I, I definitely would still do the exact same move again. I've just got to, I'd probably remember it and be a little bit more sensitive um, when it when it does come around. So yeah, there's a few learnings. Your heroes on, um, you know, uh, world superbikes and that sort of thing, they don't, uh, they don't not make mistakes as well, do they? I mean, you learn from these mistakes. Yeah. You, you can't tell me that um, Casey Stoner didn't run off the track once or twice and, and ruin a bike. Yeah, well, we, we saw that in uh, MotoGP last weekend, didn't we? We saw um, Jack Miller uh, doing an overtake and lost the front and wiped out another rider. Um, completely his fault. Like he, he admitted it was his fault. Like, and the other rider was pretty pissed off. And as you can imagine, like, it's not nice to be taken out by someone who's trying to overtake you and basically fail at doing so and wipe you out. That's not nice. Um, yeah, we all make mistakes. I, I think racing is a particular sort of scenario where mistakes happen a bit more because you have to really manage your emotions. And one of the things I learned at the Superbox school is there is a myth that you have to be crashing to go fast. And I, I, I truly believe that you need to, um, you can get really fast without crashing. And only when you're at that point, when you actually really are testing the limits of you and the bike and your traction and everything else, you're going to start to get into those crashing scenarios. That's all true until you get to racing. Cause once you get to racing, you're going to make all the silly mistakes that happen when you get really excited or really angry, or, you know, you feel like you're making time or losing time or anything else. Like all of those emotions come in and it doesn't really matter what happens. You're probably going to make a mistake in the heat of the moment. And this is why obviously doing all the training really matters because I think there's an old um, uh, military saying that when, when everything else fails, you rise to the level of your training. Like that, that's your baseline put aside every or a worst case scenario. If your training is very low, that's the maximum you're going to achieve. If your training is very high, that's the maximum you'll achieve. So I really feel like ultimately, yeah, I made a mistake and I crashed. I don't know if it would be, avo it's avoidable to the extent that I probably shouldn't have done it. But I think ultimately this comes back to me and like, I have to keep working on myself be better at racing, be better at the bike, hold my emotions under control and try not do that because it's not nice to have to fix up my leathers and fix up someone else's bike for next time. Mistakes are okay as long as we're having the opportunity to analyze and learn from them, right? Totally. Yeah. I mean, that video footage that you got is incredible for me to see and understand because in the heat of the moment, I'm sure you can relate to this when you've like fallen off when we've been on adventure rides, like in the heat of the moment, you kind of don't know what happened. It's like, what, what happened to me there? Like I, I was on the bike and I wasn't, <laughs> it's really hard to see that. But when you look at video footage, it's like, Oh, I clearly see what's going on here. And being able to learn from this is really valuable. Uh, it really, it's sticky in your mind when you get that su like such a uh, valuable piece of information, like falling off and then being able to objectively see it from a camera. Um, uh, it makes it really sticky as to, okay, next time I need to do something different. All right. So you've done, um, California Superbike school. You've done, um, bit of track work. You've done buckets now where last time we talked, we were talking, um, R6s, R7s, SV650s 
Now you're talking R15s. <laughs> yeah. well, what are we yeah. up to here? Are we? Have you changed tech? Are you going buckets? If you're going buckets, why? What's going on here? So I'm going to get a bucket bike because I'm really loving doing this. Um, <clears throat> it's also very cheap. It's a, track is closer. So it's, clo- it's very close to your home. Uh, a little bit further away from me, but still it's 40 minutes compared to a few hours. And... It's quite cheap to make mistakes. It's cheap to get into and cheap to make mistakes. So a bucket bike is going to cost under, you know, under $4,000 basically. Um, and that's going to be a, a bike and then plus all the upgrades you want to make to make it you know, special in your bike. Um, a lot of people are riding bikes that are $1,000 and $2,000. Um, contrasting people riding it. bikes they've built the frames for in their own garage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. Um, or they've taken a, they've stolen a frame from some other salvage bike that they've got for free and then they've thrown in an engine that meets spec. Yeah, like it's it's probably like a cheap way to get started. Contrasting like uh, other sorts of racing, uh, particularly the 600ccs and 1000cc classes, and people are spending for race season 40 grand, 50, 60, 70 grand for a whole year, like it's expensive. Um, the cheaper classes, I believe the 300 class is actually one of the cheaper ones in the like national comp um, to do ra- a racing series. I think I'm gonna focus on buckets because it's cheap to get into and I can learn a lot, but also uh, I've got an opportunity to ride a rental bike, uh, a 300 Ninja 300 that chappy from, what's it called? Track, total track back hire, I think that's, I think that's what it's called. Um, he's running a couple of 300s at Manfield and Pukekohe. So, you know, I've got an opportunity to get out on the bigger track on a little 300 and pay my, well, I think it's about 250 bucks for the day and just get that experience without having to go and invest, you know, three, four, probably not three, probably more like five grand, five grand to 10 grand to get a dedicated track bike and learn the things I want to learn on track. So I think at this stage, I'll get the little bucket bike. I'll rent the 300 to get that really good solid track time. And then I think maybe the next year we'll see if I, if I feel like after a few rentals of the 300, I'm keen to go and buy myself a dedicated track bike. That's going to be a decision I'll make later on. And I, I, I think it's inevitable, but it's something that I don't want to rush into. Okay. So uh, all the work you've done on the big tracks, it, it cross credits to the small tracks and the buckets. I'm going to say yes, but I still feel I haven't had enough time to really think through those techniques and really apply them on the small track. To, to my point earlier is like once racing starts, you just forget everything. <laughs> so like the lights go out and it's just like all these things that I learned at California Superbike School, they're gone. <laughs> and it's just like be fast and survive and don't crash and Obviously, that's just me not being experienced enough. So, so it like, doesn't I help when your your mate with the cameras putting cameras all over you, saying if you lose, you're out of the family. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't that doesn't help either. No. Um, <laughs> although I, I appreciated the footage, uh, I'm sure you're going to cut some footage into this uh, into this interview. But Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I, I think that if I had more solid track time, where I could just have you know half a day to really just practice technique on my bike, on that track, I would get a lot faster and I would be able to apply a lot of the learning that I've learned on the bigger track, on the smaller track and and kind of get that in my memory. Um, That's not necessarily going to stop the emotion when the lights go out, but it's going to help help give me a default to fall back to um, where I, I can just get back in the zone 
and just go back to like pure technique to run a good race. Brilliant. Uh, Todd Hislin, thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much for um, inviting me along to, uh, to your track day, your, your, your bucket racing experience. I'm just looking through my list here to um, to find previous episodes that we've spoken to you on so we can let the uh, listeners know. And I'm padding because I'm trying to find them, but they're not popping up. Uh, episode <laughs> 11 okay. of 2022 would be a good episode to start with where we talk to Todd about uh, California Superbike School. If you want to know a bit about that, then that would be a good place to start. KRP 2022, episode 11. Um, we've got written stuff up at motonz.com as well. Uh, Todd, if other people are interested in following in your footsteps and doing what you do, uh, if you've in, uh, you've excited people, you've you know uh, kindled the uh, the fire. What's your advice? Where do people go? How do they how do they do this? Depending where you are in the country, I would look up uh, bucket racing and then enter wherever you are in the country <laughs> um, or the nearest um, nearest city um or even the nearest track um on facebook it seems like most of the bucket racing communities have a facebook group um so i would jump in there because that's ultimately where i see most of the people um i believe there's also a a website uh i think it's like bucket racing new zealand it might be um we'll have to add a link in the show notes but yeah there's a uh, there's a website that kind of provides a bit more details that people can kind of look into as more of generic, a generic lookup. But yeah, I would look for the Facebook group for whichever area of New Zealand you are a part of. MNZ.co.nz, um, search for Bucket Racing New Zealand. Uh, that'll give you a lot of information. Otherwise, um, you've got uh, you've, well, it, a cheap form of motorsport turned into a rather expensive day for you, Todd. Um, You've got to get your uh, your levers fixed. You had to get a new helmet after crash number two. Uh, yes. And uh, I think you were lucky enough to get away with the repairs on the bike for a box of beer. Yes, I got some beers to deliver to Malcolm for uh, the uh, the clip-ons and the gear shifter that um, that I owe him. So, yeah, it's okay. It's uh, it's still reasonably cheap compared to dumping a. Uh, Ducati Pedigale down uh, Manfield. <laughs> the question, the one question though, was it worth yeah. it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I I was going into this willing to accept that damage may happen and I may need to pay for things. And that is okay with me because I had one hell of a good time. Outstanding. Can't wait for the next one. Todd Heslin, thank you for joining us. This is Kiwi Rider Podcast. Hit that like button, that subscribe button. Share this podcast with a riding buddy of yours. If you want to get, want to get hold of me, podcast at kiwirider.co.nz or t7adventures at gmail.com are the email addresses. MotoNZ.com, everything is up there in video, written form. Thanks very much, Todd, for hosting the website. Uh, you can check out Matt's website on throttle.co.nz and the latest edition of Kiwi Rider magazine is up right now at kiwirider.co.nz otherwise keep the rubber side down unlike todd throttle on and we'll catch you in seven days time